As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. So it's not copyright infringement if we comment on it, by the way. I think those are the rules, right? Yeah, I think so. Or maybe less than 30 seconds, so let's stop right about now. (laughs) Sure. All right. Let's just be safe. (laughs) Um, It's enjoyable to put this uh, Yugoslavian breakup music on before every single episode. This one is called Zarain by Roki Volovic. Uh, We played one of his last songs, Pant... Pantiri, Panther, on our last episode. Uh, but what's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Danny, how's it going, man? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. So, you know, it's kind of funny, guys. We recorded this podcast on Sunday. And we had such a great time recording this podcast on this exact subject. We decided to do it over again. Yeah, that's the reason. <laughs> we decided just to record the entire thing over again. So, um, I'll, I'll, we'll 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 just be upfront. So on Sunday, uh, right now we're recording this on Tuesday night. So we tried recording this episode on Sunday night, and um, we did the entire episode. It was about two hours long. And when we were finished, um, when I opened up the audio files to, you know, get ready to post everything the following day, my audio was messed up. It was all screwed up. It did not pass the, uh, the seal of approval, the, uh, the uh, quality that we need to release the show. So we're just like, all right, well, we can't actually release this to the public. Um, it is unintelligible. At least my audio yeah, that was. that was the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah, you know it was fu- unintelligible. You know so funny about that, Henry, is that, you know, as as some people might already know, I've just recently moved to Puerto Rico, and I feel like we were both, myself especially, very trepidatious about how do we, you know, do this podcast, because right now I'm, I'm super nomadic. I'm, I'm, like, recording in an Airbnb. There's no desk, so I've got, like, a monitor and a, and a you know, Mac Mini plugged in, and I'm, like, on a dresser. And I'm like contending with background noise and and so many things. So we were we were super worried that my file was going to do it, was going to do us in. But lo and behold, <laughs> nothing changed on your side, and and yours is the one that crapped out. <laughs> well, you know the reason why the audio was messed up is because someone convinced me to get this microphone that has a button that makes the <laughs> makes the sound sound shitty. No, dude. That wasn't so there's the button. a button on this, mic- <laughs> that on this is not fucking microphone that makes the sound sound shitty. And why would you add a button like that to a microphone? You got to – dude, first of all, <laughs> it's a, it's you got to be on penis mode. You got to be on penis mode. There's a button on there that looks like a dickhead. That's the one you got to be on. And all the other ones do different things. The one that makes it sound shitty is the one that's omnidirectional. It's so so why, do they can, add, why do they have that? 
Because it's Why not they shitty. Have a it's just a different. Omnidirectional. So that you could put a microphone in the middle of a room and people all around it can be picked up by the microphone. That's why. That's not the podcast setting. The dickhead setting is the podcast setting. That's the cardioid. That's the one you got to use. Anyway, it wasn't the button, dude. It was like your audio. I just want a simple fucking microphone that has one button that makes it sound good when I talk. You sound like some of the people I work with. It has nothing to do with that. (laughs) There was something totally different happening. You were like, you were like MC, you know, remixing your your lyrics like stuttering, you know, like so much more. It was it was until it had nothing to do with that. <laughs> just just gonna well, put that out there. Well, whatever I can do to not blame myself, um, I guess I don't know. If freak things happen in this business, you know, it's been a while since something like that has happened where we went through yeah. an entire episode and had to re-record it. At least since I've yeah. moved into my new place. Um, mm-hmm. I think last time it happened in our, we did a World War One propaganda episode, and the background yeah. music, the background noise with with traffic was so bad. Um, I had like a temper tantrum, and I was like, "Fuck it, I'm not doing this podcast anymore. Podcasting is stupid. Whoever podcasts is an idiot anyway." <laughs> um, so that, we came back though. Um, all right. So what we were talking about last week is that we were doing our follow up episode on the fall of Yugoslavia and the wars that erupted in the Balkans afterwards. So last week we did a very um, high-level episode, I would say, a high-level episode of Yugoslavia, the history there, the history in the Balkans, you know, the rise of Yugoslavia, the eventual downfall of Yugoslavia, and then we got to the more so the beginning stages of the war, um, not necessarily going into that in great detail. However, um, we also, you know, talked about the current crisis right now with, with uh, you know, the Republic of Srpska and, you know, the potential secession movement that's going on right now on the Serbian entity in, in, uh, in Bosnia. Um, so we're going to do a series and, you know, we're going to do, um, you know, today's going to be about the Bosnian war. And then um, I think after this, we're going to do an episode on Kosovo. But today we're going to focus primarily on Bosnia. And what makes the wars in the former Yugoslavia states um, in the 1990s so interesting, specifically in the case of Bosnia, it's the first European war to break out since World War II. But it also creates this debate over post-Cold War foreign policy. So... This debate that happens, it's probably even more contested and emotional than the debate over the Persian Gulf War. And to pull this back, and, and just like, so you know what I mean, um, you know, during Iraq War One, Republicans were the interventionist, and then Democrats were mostly against the war. You know, the debate was pretty much on partisan lines. Um, hmm. You know, Joe Biden is a good example on this. Joe Biden opposed the first Iraq War. You know, he, you know, he was a champion of the second Iraq war, um, but, you know, um, he opposed the first Iraq war. He actually later said he was wrong for opposing it. But um, at that time, Joe Biden was dovish. And Biden kind of flips around in his foreign policy stance throughout his entire career. Um, but, you know, this, you know, he kind of went with the party on this one. Um, it, he went on the anti-Bush uh, senior measure. Well, in, Bo- in the war in Bosnia, that flips on this head. So... The liberal Democrats were the primary pushers of that intervention. 
So um, essentially, yesterday's peaceniks, they became the new warmongers. And if you look at archives of um, the New York Times, there's going to be a bunch of articles saying, we need to act right now. Um, you know, you have um, you know people who work for for George Senior who are resigning because he's not doing enough to stand up for the Muslim Bosniaks that are being massacred. Um, you know, you have a million articles that are just highlighting the atrocities and you know the, diff- the ethnic cleansing campaigns. Um, you know, rape is a major um, element of these stories, and you know it is it is pretty bad. It was it was you know a brutal uh, conflict. Now these articles and you know the the primary uh, narrative from the corporate press and in the u.s government and nato was that um you know it was a conventional case of aggression by one state serbia against another state which was bosnia and you know the serbs were you know these brutal monsters who were ethnically cleansing all the muslims so you know the way that the ethnic lines were kind of drawn is that the Bosniaks were kind of just, you know, the Muslims were considered, you know, more so of an ethnic group than just, uh, you know, a religion. So, you know, the Serbs, these brutal monsters are ethnically cleansing, they're raping Muslim women, um, you know, they are uh, engaged in, um, you know, um, systemic rape campaigns, there's these mass graves everywhere, there's really just nasty, nasty stuff going on, and now we have to act, and we have to act because, the United States needs to preserve our credibility as the as the moral arbiters of the world. You know, how can we lead from behind? How can we sit here in the new world order and let, you know, another Hitler develop in Europe? And that's and that's the the narrative that's going on in the 1990s in the case of uh, in the case of the war in Bosnia, and this leads to NATO intervening in February 1994 with the U.S. in the lead. And um, what makes this NATO intervention very significant even to this day is that it transforms NATO from purely a defensive alliance to an offensive alliance. Because in the case of Bosnia, NATO projected military power against a a, a secessionist government that hadn't actually attacked a member of the NATO alliance. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So there's no actual aggression. It's not like the Serbs went ahead and attacked a, a NATO member. It was just, you know, it was an internal civil conflict. So NATO projects power in a civil war, essentially, which is not the purpose of NATO. Now, um, you know, if you listen to our last episode, we claim that the Bosnian War was ultimately caused by identity politics. So, you know, different ethnic groups of the former Yugoslavia, they feared being dominated by other ethnic groups. So, you know, the quick history is that, you know, Slovenia, Croatia, Montenegro, Macedonia, Serbia, uh, and Bosnia, Bosnia Herzegovina, um, you know, these are the country. These countries were all republics within the former state of Yugoslavia, and you know, this is a state that was ran by a strongman dictator uh, Tito for years. You know, Tito was a partisan resistance leader during the Nazi um, occupation of, of the Balkans um, during World War II. Um, he led maybe the most um, successful resistance campaign against the Nazis during the war, um, and you know, he he um, 
you know, rises to the dictator of Yugoslavia. And, you know, after Tito died in the year 1980, many of the safeguards that prevented different ethnic groups from fighting, you know, begin to dissipate. So there's a surge in ethnic national, this, um, a surge in ethnic nationalism, which comes adjacent to the decline of the civic state. And by the early 1990s, the state just implodes. So you have these different secession groups, you know, along ethnic lines, you know, they start to emerge among the different republics of Yugoslavia. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, the only states that wanted to keep their their communist governments were um, Serbia and Montenegro. So Croatia, Slovenia, Macedonia, and Bosnia, they all wanted sovereignty. Right. So, you know, what this leads to is that Croatia and Slovenia, they declare their independence in 1991, which, you know, puts Bosnia in, a, in an interesting um, position because they had to choose between independence or a possible second-class role in a Serb-dominated Yugoslavia with, at the time, you know, a pretty Serbian uh, chauvinist president in Slobodan Milosevic. So Bosnia says, I want out too. They vote for their independence in March of 1992. And, um, you know, the secession of, um, you know, what, what, what ultimately happens is like the secession of Croatia and Slovenia from Yugoslavia. You know, they left the Bosnian Muslims there. Um, you know, they left them in a greater or members of a greater Serbia. And, you know, they ultimately feared and anticipated that they would be treated unfairly in a Yugoslavia uh, dominated by the Serbs. Um, so, well, the Serbians who were living in Bosnia, they had the same idea. So they feared being a minority in a Bosnian state that was dominated by Muslims. So um, now these are administrative areas that have constantly had their borders redrawn by different empires and, and, and kingdoms and, and pluralities like, you know, the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, later the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. Um, you know, this is a region that has always been dominated by regional players. Um, even now to this date, it, uh, you know, the region is dominated by NATO and, and basically the Western world. They've always had some type of like, uh, you know, kind of imperial overlord there. So, um, but, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that there's an overlap of who lives there or, or who lives where, more importantly. So, uh, you know, Bosnia, within its borders of, you know, the sovereign state, within the monopoly of violence of the state of Bosnia, I guess it doesn't really have a monopoly of violence because NATO is kind of runs it. But, you know, Bosnia just doesn't have Bosnian Muslims living there. Bosnia has three major ethnic groups. They have Serbs, they have Croats, and they have Bosniak Muslims. So Bosnian independence, it sparks an independence movement within the Bosnian borders of the Serbian minority. So the Serbians were fighting for their own national sovereignty. Does that all make sense? You following yeah. me? You think the listeners Absolutely. are following me right now? Okay. Yeah, no, it's kind of like a all right. You know, you ever see Inception? Mm-hmm. A dream within a dream. Right. 
a secession movement within a secession movement? Right. I mean, it's a nested secession movement is what it is. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, we'll get into some um, some um, comparisons or some hypotheticals, some examples. But um, I guess it's important to know, you know, what what Serbians are thinking. You know, Serbians have been a very historically victimized group. So, you know, they've always been under. I mean, that, that doesn't obviously, you know, pretend that that they don't do anything wrong either. And it doesn't justify any I'm, of their wrongdoings moving forward. But you're absolutely right that they are very. I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying as part of the. I'm part as part of the national consciousness. I think it's more important. Um, they're they're a or the ethnic consciousness or you know part of the identity is is you know some type of victimization. So um, you know that that's what will typically ignite a lot of ethnic nationalism like you know when you ha- when your origin story has some type of, of uh, humiliation and you know you see it with Chinese nationalism right now um, you know they w- want to end this this century of humiliation when they were carved up by you know different European countries uh, for for many decades when you know all of their cities weren't under one strong Chinese state they're basically international cities um, ran by the West you know um, there's that same um, mentality when with the Third Reich in Ger- Nazi Germany. I mean, there's there's multiple humiliations in, in German history, like the humiliation of um, World War One and all the fair uh, unfair war reparations and and all of that. And then there is the also in, within German history, there's the humiliation of the Thirty Year War, when you know Germans were basically used as pawns. Um, by other European powers, and um, it was a devastating war with you know millions and millions and millions of people who died. So I mean, there's there's always this kind of humiliation aspect in in you know these national origin stories. So the Serbian humiliation, you know, um, if you if you want to go back, um, is that you know they're basically being controlled by neighboring empires or. At the very least, they were being used by, as pawns by neighboring empires. So, um, you know, they were uh, part of, you know, the Eastern Roman Empire and then the Ottoman Empire. And then right. they were always under threat of the Habsburgs and of Austria and Hungary. Hungary. Um, you know, the first great ethnic cleansing, because we're going to get into that, um, or, it's, you know, it's a, it's a uh, feature of the war, ethnic cleansing, is that, you know, the Balkans... Uh, it happened in the Balkans when the Ottomans invaded, and they, um, you know, invaded the ancient Serbian homeland of Kosovo. You know, during the height, the height or the watermark of Serbian civilization, when they had an empire and they controlled vast territories in in the Balkan regions. You know, um, you know, so you have this origin story of oh. Um, we were once this great society, and then the Muslims they came and they took it all away. And, um, hmm. you know, the, you know, the Ottomans, um, you know, separated young children from their parents and they raised them up to be devout Muslims. And, you know, these were the Janissaries and they were given special privileges such as land annexed by the Turks. So, um, you know, these native Christians who were forcibly converted to Islam, you know, they make up the ruling class of, uh, you know, of the Ottoman government in the Balkans. But, you know, um, you know, they, Serbia wins its independence from the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, but 
they had to deal with other regional powers. So the Austro-Hungarian Empire, who was, you know, constantly uh, trying to absorb Serbia or at the very least um, be a bulwark into some national sovereign sovereign movement. Um, now, probably the worst fear of the Serbians was, you know, how they were treated during World War II because, you know, they were there were simultaneous genocides going on in, in the Balkans in World War II, you know, one against the Jews and one against the Serbians there. So um, the, the, the Croats and the um, and, um, and uh, Bosnia, you know, they formed part of a Nazi, a Nazi Croatian Ustasha state. Right. It was really brutal too. <clears throat> yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was very brutal. So you know, it's kind of in the DNA at some point. Now, according to the U.S. government, you know, the war was caused by Serbian aggression. So um, you know, Bosnia gained recognition as an independent state in early 1992. They held um, you know a referendum in March 1st, 1992, in which a majority voted to secede from Yugoslavia. Therefore, um, all the support which Serbia provided to the Bosnian Serbs constituted an illegal intervention in Bosnia's internal affairs. However, to make matters um, more confusing is that the referendum, which was boycotted by the Serbs, was in itself a violation of Yugoslavia's constitution. That's right. That so right. the constitution, it conferred a right to secession, but there had to be a mutual agreement among the nations composing of Yugoslavia. And, you know, they set, they set up this constitution like this for a reason. And the reason was to avoid majoritarianism. So in other words, the tyranny of the majority. So, um, you know, we can, we can name other countries like this in the world that have um, a majoritarian type system where a, you know, when a country is, is very divided by either a, you know, either a sectarian divide or, or, a, um, or um, an ethnic divide and, you know, one group has power and the other group doesn't. And this is, you know, an example, a very clear modern day example would be Iraq, Iraq post um, Iraq War II, where you have a majority Shia group. So Shias are about 70 percent of the population. They dominate the 30 percent Sunni population. And then you can also name this say the same thing about Saudi Arabia. You have a, you know, 60 to 70 percent. Sunni population that dominates the Shia population. You know, you could say the same thing about India, where you have a Muslim, po- well, excuse me, you have a Hindu population that uh, dominates the, the Muslim population. Um, right. You know, there, there are many examples where, you know, the majority has, um, you know, kind of uh, places itself as, you know, the, the, you know, the main power holders within a state. So, um, also in Canada as well, you know Canada. No, I'm joking. 
<laughs> where there's Canada, a majority. Fucking Canada. Also the United States, where there's a majority of white people. And <laughs> in Canada. Um, so a move to secession without the consent of the Serbs was um, you know, a violation, a violation of us. Here's where the conundrum is, and I think this is where you know we can we can have a an interesting conversation because right. there's a lot of gray areas right here. So if an act of secession is illegal in a state, or if it violates its uh, constitution's terms, how can that violate international law, or why would that violate international law? Mm-hmm. It's a fair question. Or and I think. Oh, go ahead. No, continue. Finish your point. Oh, I was just gonna kind of, you know, follow that up with another question. You know, if you're a majority group and you're tied together by language or religion or you know or whatever, and um, you know you're confined to a geographic area or a province, and there's that will. Do you have the right of self-determination? I mean, I, I think probably now is a good time for us to bring up that hypothetical. I think this was around the time, the last time we ended up recording this. Um, well, and- well, let me let me pull this back. One, one more. This is this is like the real. This is what I'm trying to get at. Is there a right to secession in international law? That's what I'm trying to say. Well, let's explore that. Um, so I brought up this uh, this hypothetical last time, and, and I got a really genuine reaction out of you last time because this is something that, you know, we didn't write down and, you know, we didn't plan this at all. But it worked out so well, and I'm hoping that, that the same runs through this time around because it just worked last time. Um, so I was thinking a lot about uh, this question about, secession and the right of you know like sovereign rights you know uh within a nation state and i kept coming to our favorite state texas uh as an example um now texans they seem to hold the opinion that they have the right to secede and i'm i'm not going to be arguing for or against this point we're just going to use this as a way to describe what happened in the breakup of Yugoslavia, because I think this is actually a pretty similar, um, similar situation. And uh, let me put it this way: let's say, let's say there was a clause in the U.S. Constitution that said that any state in the U.S. can be made its own sovereign nation if it had an agreement among the rest of the U.S. states to do so. And this is super similar to the, you know, the premise of the Yugoslavian um, Constitution that they wrote in 1974, which pretty much said the same thing. It's like, okay, we're all going to be these this one big Yugoslavia, uh, but if it doesn't work out, as long as everybody agrees and, and it's, you know, good for everyone, then you can secede. There's also similar, you know, uh, questions that are happening right now with, uh, you know, Ethiopia, specifically around the Tigray scenario. And I know we talked a lot about that in our episodes on, on Ethiopia. So let's just pretend for a moment that the U.S. Constitution has a very similar clause. Now, it's no surprise that there is a large population of Mexican Americans that are living in Texas 
and particularly in the border communities uh, between Mexico and, and Texas. Now, let's pretend that Mexico decided that because of racial oppression or something like that, that they wanted to break off and become their own thing. And and not like be annexed by Mexico. They wanted to be their own thing. Let's call it what do we call it last time? New New Mexico, right? New New Mexico. New New Mexico. New New Mexico. <laughs> right. So we're we're calling this this new sovereign state New New Mexico. And so, you know, they make their case, you know, and you know, obviously a lot like the the um uh, uh, Bosnians at the time, the Muslim Bosnians, they're not going to get internal support, you know, in the United States to do this. They're probably going to have to, you know, reach out to the international community and make their case there. And you know, this is highly unlikely, but just just pretend like it it becomes a thing, right? Because of international pressure, new New Mexico is now formed, right? So, what would happen in new New Mexico is that. Mexicans or people of Mexican descent would be a majority in this new New Mexico, right? However, there would still be a good number of non-Mexican Americans, you know, non-Mexican American citizens, that is, uh, who live and work and own businesses and everything else in new New Mexico. So, that could be a little bit of a problem, right? Because an ongoing dispute would pop up about whether or not this new New Mexico should be formed. You know, it's possible that I don't know. Maybe Mexico would start supporting the Mexicans, and you know, uh, because they're they share a, a similar heritage, kind of like how right now Serb, Greater Serbia, so Serbia itself, uh, is supporting the uh, Republic of Srpska in Bosnia Herzegovina or you know. or why don't we just use the, why don't we just use the most um, prevalent and high profile case right now so Russian supporting separatists in Donbass Exactly it, it you you could imagine that that could be the case right you know so that that would that would probably cause some tension because now these you know um, Americans that are living in New New Mexico, because that's where their homes are and their businesses are, they just happen to be caught up in the New New Mexican Revolution or the New New Mexican Secession, right? They might feel a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that now they've become a super minority in what used to be a, you know, wh- where they used to be a majority. Um, also pretty interesting is that, you know, the, these Mexican, uh, these Americans living in New New Mexico would probably be the heavier armed uh, class, as we know, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of Texans own guns and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that they'd be willing to fight for what they believe is theirs or, you know, for their rights and things like that. And they're, they'd be totally within their reason to do so. And now they have a new, you know, threat. And, and this is like a a threat to be oppressed by the former oppressed, right? And this is exactly how the Serbs were feeling, or are feeling, really, in um, Bosnia and Herzegovina at the time. They're thinking, well, shit, we just got carved out into Bosnia and Herzegovina by international pressure. We didn't want this. This is against our constitution, but it's now a thing. And now we're a minority, and we're afraid that they're going to do fucked up things to us. 
So, you know, it's very likely that they're going to resist. Now, want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And all these borders, and I think it's important to note, you know, all these borders are just completely illogical and stupid and yeah, not written bullshit. by the people who live there. It's like, you right. know, mo- a lot of these states um, in, in Eastern Europe and the Balkans and Africa and the Middle East, they, the people weren't, I mean, no one really, I guess no one wakes up and draws the borders that they live in. But, I mean, these borders were not drawn to <laughs> respect the the people, the, the different ethnic groups and stuff like that, you know, of course, they're not, not like islands, like a Japan, like, like in a right. Japan, like where, you know, you kind of have that island where you can nationalize. And I guess that kind of produces something pretty bad too. And the way Japan was just so fanatically nationalist um, right. in the, in the 20th century, but, you know, a really good comparison of, you know, what everyone is uh, following right now. The most prevalent news story is, you know, Ukraine, um, what's what's going on in ukraine oh russia's gonna invade it um and maybe we'll speak about this later in this episode but well i think um, more more to the point on borders because i don't want to leave this topic just too quickly yeah you know the, th- the thing about yugoslavia is that yeah okay so w- i definitely agree with you that they didn't draw these borders for bosnia and herzegovina with like the ethnic makeup of the people that live there in mind but you have to understand that you know, at the time, and in, in arguably even still today, like there is so much intermingling of these ethnic groups and things like that that it would be impossible to draw a border that makes sense uh, around there. And I think the best example of this would be, you know, an ongoing, the, arguably one of the ongoing biggest border issues in you know the history in history is you know the Israel-Palestine issue, right? Where, where, you know, we got two groups, you know, Israelis and Palestinians or Arabs generally, right? And there's a, a really good mix of both. And so if you look at a place like West Bank, where, you know, from a high level map, it looks like, okay, this is West Bank and that is Israel. If you actually zoom in really good, the, the real borders of, of West Bank is Swiss cheese because they've carved out these little pockets 
of Israeli settlements within the, the, the greater you know, West Bank. And, and if you were to try and draw a border in Bosnia and Herzegovina at the time and say, okay, this is going to be the little pockets of Serbs and the little pockets of Croats and the little pockets of Bosnians, it, the map would make no sense. It would make no sense. And to come back to this hypothetical, the same would be true of New New Mexico. Because within New New Mexican communities, there's there's going to be in and around, you know, these American um, or mostly American uh, non-Mexican communities, there would be Mexican communities and they'd intermingle and drawing the borders wouldn't make any sense, right? So it's more than just like, you know, some dude somewhere just decided, hey, this is this is <laughs> this is what it's going to be. It'd be worse than our gerrymandering maps, you know? So, you know, it, it's tough. And so, you know, kind of back to this this hypothetical, you know, the creation of this state would run contrary to my initial premise here that the US Constitution had a clause that allowed for secession as long as everyone agreed. Because in this case, I think it's pretty easy to tell nobody's going to agree on this. Nobody's going to agree to making a, a, a new New Mexico. And this would obviously run contrary to the U.S.'s ability or capability to self-determine. It would run counter to our sovereignty. And so the grounds on which this new state would be formed could seem reasonable at first, but, you know, with the, you know, I mean, you could say, all right, well, there is a history of, you know, oppression, racially motivated oppression, uh, and that's why these Mexican-Americans need their own thing. That that could be, you know, on the face of it, could sound reasonable at first. And it, it it's imaginable that the international community might even back it, um, especially in this hypothetical, right? We're, we're just going to say that they will. And, and even that international community backing it might seem reasonable by itself. But again, no one in the United States would agree that a, Mex- a new New Mexico state should be formed. And therefore, it would run contrary to the U.S. Constitution. And so furthermore, there's a minority of Americans that are living in this new Mexican state who would either have to leave which would be literally um, ethnic cleansing. It would be ethnic, it would be ethnic cleansing. Or, or, it would literally you know, be for, ethnic cleansing. It would be, it would be forced migration at the very least. And right. I guess ethnic cleansing is, is, you know, the definition of that is when one group says... Uses force, know, right. Mm-hmm. Uses force to say, get the, you know, get out of the, get out of here, you. We don't want your kind in here. And usually that, you know, is adjacent to some type of horrible atrocity to make, you know, to turn as an example. And then people are mm-hmm. like, okay, let's go. They're serious. They're chopping people's hands off. And, um, you know, that, um, you know, that's that's like the definition of ethnic cleansing. But, um, you know, if, I guess that would be a, I mean, would you consider that voluntary migration if you were if mean, you're forced to stay in a place, but you know that would you, you would, would a second tier citizen as you stay? But maybe yeah, there's no threat ex- of violence. Exactly. Well, the thing is, the sometimes the perceived threat of violence is enough, right? And it's it's, and and this is exactly what was going on in Bosnia and Herzegovina on the Serbian side, right? So they believed that you know if if they're going to be in a country that is majority, you know, Bosnian, Muslim Bosnian, that they that they would somehow face oppression because they would no longer have, you know. 
any power in that in that particular um, institution, and their fear of of the Bosnian Muslims retaliating against what could have been historical, you know, um, grievances or even contemporary grievances at the time. And it makes sense. Like if you fucked with somebody enough, and then suddenly you're in a position where they're in power over you, yeah, you'd probably have pretty good reason to fear retaliation. And so that retaliation would certainly cause a lot of voluntary migration, right? But is that necessarily voluntary if you have the perceived fear of aggression? Well, I guess you can make that same argument for like economic refugees. Uh, I mean, I guess maybe it's not directly relates to oppression, but if you're forced to live in some unfavorable condition, then does that automatically um, um, heighten your uh, status as a you know some type of refugee that is fleeing a, an unfavorable situation? Well, because, in international you know, law, the, I think I think it does. Uh, account for you know um, economic hardship for sure well here's the here's the problem why you know this is impossible it's because there's not a single part of the planet that's not covered by a nation state well there is one <laughs> and i think we we're, actually talked about this too we're, uh, we did talk about that that desert be, yep beer to wheel it's beer it's to in, wheel yep it's beer to wheel. It's in. It's a small little patch uh, of land, of desert land, in between Sudan and Egypt. And I'm not going to go into the entire story behind it because it's it's complex. But all you need to know is that there's been a border dispute around this one section of just middle of nowhere desert. And like legally speaking, if they claim beer to wheel, they lose claim over another disputed land, which is the Halal Eib Triangle. So. Nobody really wants to claim it. Neither of these countries want to claim it for that reason. And so it's just kind of no man's land. And what's funny about it is that people will make the very dangerous trek to go to the middle of the desert and go to Beer to Wheel and they'll plant their flag and then name it whatever they want, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, and then until somebody else comes and does the same and conquers that. Um, what would you call your, your country if you took over Beer to Wheel? Hankistan? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What would I be? Should I be a, a stand? I don't know. Or great, or great. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Zamoda. Uh, I can't think of a good. I can't think of a witty one. I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna be a stand. I'll be Hankistan. Or no, I'll be the republic. I'll be. Rep- <laughs> What's that? I always wanted to You're run an, an empire. empire. Yes, yeah, so well, I'd probably be the, qualify. the empire of Abdeljabaria. You know. Abdel. Del Jabaria. Hey, I mean the word like a, the the name sounds like it would fit in the region, right? It does. It sounds like one of those countries you'd be like, "What the fuck is El Jar?" Like if you put that down on the map. El Out. Let me help, help me pronounce this. El Jabara. Yeah. Abdel Jabaria. Ab, I should know your last name. Abdel Jabaria. <laughs> okay, Abdel Jabaria. Right. So if you put that on the map, Abdel Jabaria, then mm-hmm. you would be like, "What the what the hell is that?" 
If you like wrote an article and you're like, man, the the war crimes that are taking place in El Jabaria are heinous. We're not war criminals, man. We're the all war crimes <laughs> we are going on. It sounds like a fictional country that in a Tom Clancy book. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. <laughs> or it sounds like the name of the game, right. No, it sounds like the name of a country that they would use in like a war game in the U.S. military. You know. Yeah. <laughs> It really no it more or less sounds like a um, you know like some type of um, like fantasy. Mm-hmm. It would be like an, a, a fantasy. That's what setting. I'm going for. Yeah, that's what I'm going yeah. for. You know, like something in Final Fantasy. You know, oh, it's the Zemoda, kingdom of Eldaria. Zamoda stand sounds like some type of uh, ambigu- um vague like Eastern european country that is like the bad country in in uh, some war game or some movie yep oh man Agreed. the terrorists from zomotistan <laughs> those bastards <laughs> oh, i was born in the south of family and now i am out of the world and i will be terrorist um <laughs> but okay so to your to your point back to your point because we've, we've went down this rabbit hole i think far enough you know there there is no patch of land where people could just go that does that isn't already occupied by somewhere else, and so that's why migration, and particularly forced migration or even economic migration, you know, becomes so difficult to deal with, and that's that's why we're having such a big trouble in you know uh, Belarus and Poland's border. You know, uh, well, at the very least, I think that Belarus is, you know, Lukashenko has been proven to to have well, accelerated well, I mean, that happened. issue. Well, look what happened in <laughs> so, France. You know, there is this you know tragic event that happened with these migrants who died in the English Channel. I don't know if you heard about read about that story. I think so. So the, my, I think around 25 or so migrants died in a boat going yeah, from an English Channel from France to England. Um, but like my question was is like man, was it or is it so shitty in France that they're going <laughs> to take a deadly ride that I mean, no, I don't think I necessarily it was like bit, shitty a little bit in poor taste. I, th- I don't think it's shitty on France. I think it's just they thought they had better chances in England. But you know, even even if you <laughs> leaving France out of the picture is just thinking about people who are crossing the, our border here in the south. You know, and they are you know legitimately leaving some. At least many of them are leaving really really bad conditions in their home countries and fear for their lives. And you know, it makes you think like shit. If it's that bad. That you would risk your life to to leave, you know, you got to stop and think about that, and then kind of bringing it back again to our hypothetical here, you know, these these Americans living in New New Mexico would, you know, potentially fear for their lives, or at least fear for their livelihood, uh, in a state where they feel that they are now second class citizens, much in the same way that these Serbians felt at the time when. You know, Bosnia and Harris, uh, Bosnia was created, and so I mean, I think look, either they have to leave the, the Americans living in New Mexico, or you know, they, you know, they'd have to stay, and if they stayed, they likely would start getting receiving U.S. aid, just like you know, the Mexico would be aiding the Mexicans here. Uh, would that make the U.S. Be seen as a aggressor. Like, imagine if the United States says, "Okay, well, we we have to help our American citizens that decided that they want to stay in their homes in New Mexico, and we're going to provide them with, 
you know, money and guns and you name it so they can protect themselves. Wouldn't that make the U.S. the aggressor in that situation? Wouldn't that make them meddling in the internal affairs of a sovereign state? Not like that's well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There's no principled precedent that's been set. So in terms of, I guess, where we started this off when we were talking about international law, is secession legal in international law? Right. Well, there is no answer to that. No one really knows. It's a case-by-case thing. It's um, it's not at all a consistent precedent, and right. it really just depends on what international player you're, uh, you know, what international player says what, or what an international player is willing to tolerate, and more you know, po- what their interests are. More pointedly, are. what the United States says, because as as yeah. you point out, there isn't any particular charter in international law that determines that people can secede from any state. Secession is either handled one of two ways: either a peacefully by two parties, which is incredibly rare, or B, which is mostly the case, through military aggression, meaning a civil war. And it kind of makes sense that that there isn't an international law that would allow for a state to break off from any other state, because if if that were the case, then we would we would constantly see a flux of new countries popping up and splitting and, you know, having civil wars all the time. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. There'd be no state that would be willing to contain itself. If, if, or would uh, be able to contain so, itself if it was allowed yeah, be, so yeah, would not. Yeah, everything would just sliver off and become its own own little thing, especially countries right. that are divided, you know, really, really divided among ethnic lines. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know— like Kurdistan. Yeah, the U.S. There's racism. There's racism in the U.S. and there's racism, you know, in, in every society there is. But you can't really compare it with like you know, kind of like the deep-rooted hatreds of peoples, like in other countries, mm. uh, or you know, the countries like this. Um, unless you're Canada, you know, right? There's no, there's no racism at all in Canada. I don't um, know, man. Those you know, they're, they, they're pretty mean, mean to the Inuits and the native peoples. I mean. Those damn Inuit, those damn Native Canadians. You ever see the South Park making fun of that? First, the oh, First Nations. Bloody I think Native Canadians. for it. What's it, what um, is that? I think it's called the First Nations. I think that's the the either the politically correct or just straight up the correct term is the First Nations. Well, um, so John Dolan, the war nerd, was on Scott Horton the other day, and he was actually talking about Ethiopia. Um, mm-hmm. So th- those are like my two favorite podcasts in the world: world uh, Scott Horton Show and then the Radio War Nerd. Um, mm-hmm. And they were talking about the Ethiopian conflict. I know this is a little bit off note, but he was talking about how um, he was, the context of the conversation was like the ethnic hatred. And then he was talking about Canada. He's like, I was in Canada, and I've never been so shocked. I've seen I've, there was um, multi-ethnic street gangs there. So there'd be an Asian guy, a Russian guy, a white guy. Like it's like I've never seen anything like that in my life. Multi-ethnic street gangs. Multi-ethnic, right? Like you know, you're not seeing that in prison, except in the movie The Warriors. You ever see The Warriors? Warriors, come out and play. Sorry. You ever, yeah. You, you've seen you've seen the Warriors. The gangs there. It was I guess it was very ahead of its time because all the gangs in the Warriors were like multiracial gangs. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's called it's called uh it's called progress. Um, but it's, it's interesting to 
to think like that. There's, you know, there's some, I think Canada, I think by all the metrics, I think Canada and the UK, uh, and even the US and, and a couple of European countries are, are, you know, considered the least racist countries in, on, in the country, in the, in the world. And then um, I think the, the most racist country as far as like opinion polls, I know I'm going to get shit for saying this, but this is one that most commonly comes up in, in polls is India. Yep. Um, but um, before I get a bunch of angry emails for saying that, um, which <laughs> well, I let's, let's get, get let's get most. back let's get back to this because there's there's still more that you know I have to say here. It's, it's, okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we're we're getting off track right here. We didn't even get off this track our lot when we recorded this the first time. I know, um, right? We, we're going we're going um, further off the rails. But all right, let's. So in the case of international law, so let's look at because what what I just said that it depends on who you ask. You know, if right. if uh, it, or what a country is willing to tolerate, uh, another country is willing to to- tolerate as far as if in a, a uh, secession move it's going to be accepted or not. So, um, mm-hmm. so the real world examples that are going on right now or that have gone on, you know, in the past five years or so, you know, we have Kurdistan or we have Rojava in Syria. The United States is willing to tolerate a Rojava or a Kurdish state in Syria, but. Turkey is not willing to tolerate a, a Kurdish state in northern Syria, so that state doesn't exist. Right. You know, I think right. a lot of countries are willing to tolerate a Rojava, but I think the U.S. would prefer some type of Rojava just to have, um, you know, be able to squat on, on oil fields and stuff like that. But that Turkey has a vendetta against the Kurds. And, I mean, right. because there's, there's violent... Um, Kurdish groups within the Turkish borders, so they're not willing to tolerate that. Um, and then there's the case of Donbas, you know, the one that's really big in the news right now. So, um, you know, Russia, you know, they're supporting um, the, you know, according to Russia, they, you know, they support some type of secessionist movement. At least they they support you know autonomy there or or kind of work on behalf of them. But you know, the Ukrainian government and NATO and and um, you know the Western world um, is not really willing to willing to tolerate that, um, mm-hmm. especially in the case of Crimea as well, where people are. I guess that's not a secession; that's more of an annexation. But the people um, voted to be part of Russia in Crimea, uh, and then there's Tigray, you know, where there's a country that is it's kind of falling apart on ethnic lines based on how you know the borders were drawn and how it was set up. Um, it seems like the U.S. is more willing to tolerate some type of secession movement, but, um, you know, I'm not exactly sure how that's going to play out in the future, but it's just really based on what the United States really says, or, or at least the, the closest nearest power. It seems like Turkey has a lot of pull um, on world affairs when it comes to at least what's going on in their regional world, because, you know, they'll do things that are directly, they're NATO, but they don't act like along with other NATO um, they don't act like NATO. Country. <laughs> they don't. Act, they sure as hell don't act like NATO. They just kind of do their own thing, and they and they do their own interests. It's kind of interesting to see them um, do things that are not. See how that works um, out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But well, I mean, look. I mean, in the case of Rojava, right? Like, or a Kurdistan, whatever we want to call it. You know, at least part of that might constitute, you know, territories inside of Turkey, and Turkey wouldn't have it for sure. So, you know, look, the, the U.S. and the international community back when Bosnia was created, 
we we backed Bosnia's right to exist as its own independent state. And, you know, therefore, I think based on all of the things that we've been talking about here, I think you could you could label this as an illegal intervention into the self-determination of the Yugoslavian state. Because of the aforementioned, you know, they, they have their own set of laws. They're their own country. Like, who are who is anyone else to say who can and can't leave? And I'm not trying to make the argument here that Serbians did nothing wrong. And I'm also not trying to make the argument that the Bosnian Muslims would not have been oppressed by the Serbian, you know, uh, majorities. I'm also say, not saying that the Bosnian Muslims in Bosnia wouldn't have oppressed the Serbian minorities in Bosnia. All I'm trying to say is we got to look at this from like the legal standpoint of national sovereignty, you know, because after all, what is sovereignty if it can be undone by an international community? And so it really makes you think about why the international community decided that it wanted to illegally intervene in the Yugoslavian state. And there's honestly a lot of flip-flopping that goes on around, around this. So listen to this. In the summer of 1991, the U.S. favored uh, the preservation of Yugoslavia. So meaning they didn't want it to break up. Um, and pretty much immediately thereafter, just a couple months later in the spring of 92, they said, no, we, we should break that up and there should be a Bosnia. And then after that Bosnian breakup, they were like, okay, no, territorial integrity means a lot. So we shouldn't break up Bosnia or any other country now because, you know, I don't know, borders are sacred and something, something new world order. Right. And literally this is a span over like I don't know, 18 months total. So we were the ones who egged it on, and then we went back on it, and then we went back and forth and back and forth and over and over again. And really, the, the linchpin here that no one really talks about for this is that the, the Soviet Union collapsed. And, you know, we initially wanted to keep Yugoslavia together because they were useful for us when the Soviet Union was around. They were a buffer zone against the Soviet states. But now that the Soviet Union wasn't anymore... We really didn't have a need for them, Yugoslavia, that is, to be one single entity. And therefore, we start becoming cool with them breaking up. Well, so there's, yeah, so you pointed out there's this huge policy shift. And, um, you know, we were talking about this last week and you you that or last when we did our episode on Yugoslavia, you were like, mm-hmm. you know, why do you think that? Um, there was this this shift. Like, why did the U.S. favor balkanization of the of Yugoslavia um, right. after the fall of the Soviet Union? And I still, I, I'm still kind of. Um, I don't think most. Inter- I don't think most people who do this, uh, you know, full time for a living, um, could really have great answers um, regarding what was the main motivation for the Clinton administration and, and their and their. Uh, their intervention in breaking up Yugoslavia into these territories and mm-hmm. um, and um, in, in doing what they did, and um, you know we so oops, I just dropped my microphone. Let me get this. Um, so let's just go back to Yugoslavia when it starts to unravel um, in the early 1990s, because 
I think it's important to point out that U.S. leaders, they were looking at it with benign detachment, you know, especially when like Slovenia and Croatia and Bosnia were all declaring their independence and mm-hmm. um, they exited the Federation. Like they were just like, OK, that's 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 fine. That's good. Like, great, because Yugoslavia prior was, you know, it was a communist country. However, Yugoslavia was a um they weren't like a Soviet satellite. They, they weren't, you know, part of the Iron Curtain. Um, you know, they were independent. They had um, some level of privatization in, in, um, in their economy with major industries and in, in farmland and agriculture. Um, so they weren't, you know, completely full-blown, um, you know, um, Soviet sycophants. Um, Tito had kicked out the common turn after the war. They had their disagreements. So they, they were kind of like this weird second world country or something like they kind of were like that example of like a second world state um if you want to call it that you know they obviously mm-hmm. had some problems that coming that comes with you know the with centralized planning and pricing and stuff but you know they did make some type of changes and you know there was some there were you know they were taking imf loans prior to uh the breakup right that's I, right i'm pretty sure you brought that up yep that's right so they um you know they Yugoslavia was super interesting because they were communist, but not not exactly. Um, I guess kind of like China now, uh, before China became China, they obviously maintained a, a, a you know a socialist uh, country, and they were communist in in governance. But they started opening up to international funds um, because it was beneficial to them, but also. Uh, just because they needed it uh, at a certain juncture. And there was a lot of prosperity that was happening at the time. And I think um, I went over this in the last episode, but, you know, I can I can bring up a couple of easy points. Um, uh, as an example, they had super high growth rate uh, between 1960 and 1980. Uh, they had a decent standard of living uh, for what it's worth. Uh, medical care, education were all free, guaranteed jobs, one month paid vacation, um, super high literacy rate. Apparently, they were over ninety percent, and their life expectancy was about seventy-two years old, which was fairly high. Um, and this all happened in not a capitalist society. It happened where most of the economy was in the public and not in the not-for-profit sector, and that ran totally contrary to global capitalism. Um, but somehow the IMF managed to convince the Yugoslavians that, hey, you should take some money for us and it'll make your lives easier and better. And, you know, I think when it comes to why Yugoslavia broke up or why we were so interested in that, I think it's a combination of a bunch of things, but part of it is that they no longer served a purpose for us as a... um, as a buffer state to the Soviets, since the Soviets weren't a thing anymore. And part of it was just that we already started doing business with them. And it's easier to, let's say, take advantage of smaller, more disparate states than it would one cohesive, unified one that, you know, for all intents and purposes, was doing pretty well for itself, as it was. And I really think that, that that part of this is, for me, very, very compelling. 
you know, following that money trail. So, I, I mean, all right. I think that's definitely the Occam's razor. Um, right there. I think that's probably I think that's probably the reason. I agree with you on that. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Um, more so than, I guess, do you want to jump into what we were reading, yeah. uh, what I read to you last week? Because I feel like uh-huh. this is a pretty good segue. Yeah. So um, I was pulling up some Justin Romando, and Justin Romando, um, he wrote a lot. So Antiwar.com, you know, Justin Romando was one of the founders of Antiwar.com, you know, one of the great muckrackers of all time. He died two years ago, Um, but he's a very uh, sardonic, he was a very sardonic writer, um, very uh, tongue-in-cheek a little bit. I would say um, aggressive in his writing. Uh, wrote vicious hit pieces about people. Um, just You know, he was a prick, but he was a great muckracker. So, um, and he's probably my favorite writer of all time. I, I love everything that he writes. Now, his reason for, you know, what he wrote in his, his famous pamphlet um, it's called In- Inside the Bosnian Quagmire. He blames it on a um, on liberal internationalism, like the ideology of, of uh, li- liberal internationalism. Um, so just to kind of just go over the, uh, the history, though, first is that um, George Bush, you know, he seemed at first seemed inclined to to let Europe deal with the with the conflict, and mm-hmm. Europe was able to iron out some deals like the Vance Owen plan. And you know, when I say Europe, I mean like Britain, France, and Germany, and the EU. Right. Um, but you know, the the Clinton administration when they got into power, they really um, you know stepped up involvement, and you know they took the lead on the policy. Um, and you know, their policies were very. They had anti-Serb measures in place. And, you know, it was them that decided to use military force in NATO. Um, and, you know, that ultimately led to NATO launching um, airstrikes against Bosnia and Serb forces. Now, um, I'm going to read this out to you. So Justin Ramondo wrote, With communism dead and all but buried, their allegiance has shifted from socialist internationalism of the woozy Wilsonian variety. The Clinton administration is the perfect vessel of new Wilsonian internationalism in seeking an explanation for the incredible political risk undertaken by an administration not known for its principled stands. No commentator seems to have come up with a coherent theory as to what motivated the president to do what he said he would never do, put American ground forces in the Balkans. If we look at the details of the Dayton Accord, 
However, there is in it its convoluted and detailed provisions a certain logic. For it is not an agreement to silence the guns, but a blueprint for the Bosnian body politic. Embedded in its complex clauses is a single-minded and even fanatical devotion to the concept of a Bosnia as a model of multi-ethnic diversity. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) um, well, before, before before we get into that, I just want to explain what the Dayton Peace Accords were. Uh, we spoke about the Dayton Accords briefly last week. So the Dayton Accords is what ended the war in 1995, or the peace accords that kind of set the current Bosnian government in place. Um, so it split the country into two administrative entities, a Serb-run entity, a Republic of Srpska, and then a Bosnian-Croat-dominated um, federation entity. And, you know, the post-war agreement turned Bosnia basically into a um, pretend country, I guess. I mean, is that just too flagrant to call them a pretend country? They're not what really. country is not kind a of pretend a, they're country kind of a, at this point? They're at, yeah, well, I mean, this is to a very high level. Um, so Bosnia is, is completely dependent on international financial inputs. Um, you know, the ethnic divisions are still exist. They make political cooperation pretty much impossible. Um, you know, right now, um, you know, the country is just completely poverty stricken. It's dysfunctional and it's 100 percent dependent on the international community. And, um, you know, despite that, it has a status as uh, an independent state, but it, it completely the, the real power resides in like, international officials. So, um you know, when NATO turned over responsibility for post-war reconstruction um, to the to the UN after the Dayton Accords, the UN appointed a high representative, and the high representative, it's their job was to resolve policy disputes by fiat if uh, contending parties couldn't reach an agreement. So there's a high representative who can just dictate major policy decisions there who's not such a you know, ridiculous elected. Name. it's just a UN it's just a UN so it's just some german guy named christian schmidt he's the UN administrator in bosnia and you know they you know the high administrator they 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 decree you know like a roman consulate who's dictating terms to the gauls you know they're basically a colony they're viceroy mm-hmm. um so it's not really it's just like, well, I mean, what it, the fuck? It, it, first of all, the name is so stupid, right? It's it's just like, Lou, look at me. I am your high I am your German high representative. Okay, that, that's the first one. The second one that really jumps out at me is the fact that they impose those decisions that they make and resolve those policy disputes by fiat, as you say. So, in other words, by by giving or withholding money. So again, this this just reinforces what I my my opinion. This this Bosnia wasn't created in good faith that we're gonna, you know, as as Justin Romando said, I think I think it, at least it's part of it, right? That might be like the superficial tip of the iceberg where we wanted to, you know, play uh, in the sandbox and make you know a multi-ethnic country in the middle of you know Southeast Europe. Um, maybe that's a little bit about it, but really. Really, when you look at 
how the structure is set up, where a high representative is, is basically the end-all, be-all, and the way that they dictate their power is through money, it's very clear to me that it was just easier to it's easier to control that region. It's easier to, to you know, plunder that region if they break it up and set up a system by which they can overrule their that new thing's sovereignty. Because that's what it's easier is. to boss. It's easier to boss around small, weak states and a big, strong state. That's like, right. why do you think the why do you think the U.S. was so bent on keeping the Arab nations from from uh, uniting? You know, because there was, you know, a movement to pretty much unite all the Arab countries and you know have kind of like a socialist type economy where they share the oil wealth, and uh, the United States didn't want that to happen. Um, but you know, Syria and Egypt combined for two years, but it didn't really work out. It actually was horrible. I mean, it was just it the same problems that you would expect in like an ethnic world. Well, all right, let me not get too ahead of myself. I'll just say that Nasser was very unfair to the Syrians when they combined, and it just caused a lot of problems. But that's a subject to another. That's a, another subject. Um, let me get back to this Ramondo thing because I just think it's. I think this is just a funny article or a funny uh, pamphlet, and it uh, definitely can match somebody's worldview. And I'm a little. I'm kind of convinced. But I know you probably wouldn't as be as much. So the plan. So he's gonna write. So he's writing about the uh, Dayton Accords. The plan drafted by the U.S. State Department divides Bosnia into two sub entities the Serbian region, and the Croatian Muslim Federation. The country will therefore have multiple presidents, and not only that, it will also have multiple armies and presumably government officials in triplicate feeding at the public through. This plan truly has Bill Clinton's stamp all over it, in parentheses. These parallel structures are supposed to lead to a permanent peace between factions that have been battling for 400 years. He's being facetious right there. I don't think they've been battling for 400 years. Instead, this schizoid state can only last as long as the U.S. NATO troops are there to prop it up. The whole constitutional structure of the Bosnian state, as envisioned by Richard Holbrook and company, is like an intricate and very expensive machine designed to perform only one function to break down. In a classic case of psychopolitical projection, the Dayton Accord imposes on the signatories a system apparently modeled on the modern American campus where each ethno-religious minority has its own ethnic studies department, its own dormitories, and its own campus organizations. In the imaginary state of Bosnia, its American architects have erected a model of multiculturalism, an edifice edifice perfectly suited to the fragmented inherently contentious structure of bosnian civil society bosnia's collective presidency is an attempt to replicate the relative calm of of the immediate post-tito era when the communist party of yugoslavia adopted a similar system indeed the provisions of the dayton accord detailing the constitutional structure of the bosnian state are merely a more elaborate variation on the old yugo communist system the question that every American, every thinking American must be asking at this point is why must Serbs and Croats be forced to live under Bos- Bosnian Susan tree? The answer is that 
the, that Clinton's crusade for multi-ethnicity abroad is but a projection of the liberal domestic agenda, racial victimology, affirmative action, and a wholesale assault on property rights in the name of multiculturalism. In the hierarchy of a victim groups, the Bosnian Muslims have acquired international celebrity status, not since Hollywood discovered the inherent, inherent nobility of the Native American has a victim's Victim group's misfortune been the focus of so much media attention. The American left of the 90s for whom victimology and the group and group rights has replaced Marxist socialism as an, as an animating ideology has been well prepared to accept and enthusiastically endorse interventionism and militarism in the name of political correctness. Under the pressure of the events in the former Yugoslavia, the loony internationalism of the liberal elite has overwhelmed the traditional anti-war proclivities of the left. So someone who, I don't know, do you still consider yourself part of the left? Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not in the right. Uh, I don't consider, I, well, I, that's I, fair. I don't, I don't consider myself part of the right anymore. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I was, I feel like I used to be part of the right and i feel like you used to be part of the left yeah i feel like there's, a, there's like a z-axis that we don't talk about you know what i mean like there's like left right there's authoritarian and libertarian right so there's that square right that's you know two dimensions there's a z-axis that i quite haven't figured out yet and i'm on that z-axis instead <laughs> you know like kind of moving yeah. away from the square <laughs> um yeah i'm kind of uh I'm pretty much the same way. I'm, I, I like how Dan Carlin says it. Uh, he called himself a political Martian. I feel, I feel like that's a, a good way to put it. Um, I don't really fall in the camps, but this is, I think, is funny, and I think there's definitely some truth to it. I think that there is this, um, this attitude in like academia and among like you know liberal elite society that does have this mentality when it comes to international affairs, like the liberal internationalist. They do use... Maybe this isn't the main modifier. Like, I don't think this is, like, what modifies... I don't think this is what motivates people, you know, countries to interfere, but I think this is how um, you can justify it, you know, to yourself. Yeah. I think this is how you can justify it to yourself. I mean... I don't think that this was purely just a project to create a multi to create multiculturalism in a foreign country, but I think you can tell yourself that after you know you know you chop up the country and then you kind of drain its resources like you. Yeah, I mean, it could be before. it could just be a nefarious way to spin it and be like, oh, we're gonna chop up the country and like you know rape them financially, but we're gonna play it like we're making an ethnic, multi-ethnic like wonder state. And look at us. Yeah. Awesome. You know, like that's, it could be the nefarious way. It could just, or it could be the other way around. It could be, you know, there were people who legitimately wanted to have a glorious multi-ethnic state in Bosnia and Herzegovina where people didn't fight and they got along and stuff like that. And that was all true and good intentioned, but they were used as um, useful idiots uh, by the folks that actually just wanted to chop up the country and make it easier for them to boss it around. You know, it's kind of funny because our current conflict, uh, Ukraine, um, if you kind of compare it to that, 
it's not like there's so many things that are just um completely at odds with like the modern liberal values like i'm not talking about like liberal as in like classical liberal you know like the liberal democrat values um liberal left values liberal center left values i guess there's so many ways to explain it but you know like whatever joy reed is or you know whatever she is or whatever rachel maddow is whatever those characters are um there's um you know this i can definitely see this being like oh you know, we need to protect you know the 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 uh the poor people of this country but then that same group of people are for supporting like you know fascist types in ukraine so it's like those values are directly thrown a loop and and like and they shift uh, depending on on you know uh on the uh international scenario and i don't really think it has anything to do with really caring about the people there mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. what i'll say i guess I'm not sure if i said that in a well-spoken manner but i don't think that really any or most geopolitical decisions to intervene in the country have to do with like um pet projects in some weird academic's head uh, I think they mostly have to do with just like money. Some fucking money is what it's really motivates money. people. It's always money. Um, but I guess the greater, I just think that was an interesting read. And, and uh, you know, at least, you know, I, I, for some, I really just don't have like a good, I, a good uh, grasp or a good conclusion on why the U.S. intervened. Um, but, you know, the Occam's razor approach, I think, may be the way to go. But I think. The biggest conclusion that I've I've taken from from this from the U.S. Uh, intervention in, in Bosnia is that you know it was just kind of a, a big missed opportunity for the U.S. to set more rational priorities for itself in the post Cold War world, and um, you know by taking that leadership role, what Washington ultimately does it just it it reinforces this unhealthy European dependence on U.S. security guarantees. And, um, you know, right now this is still a controversy that's in, um, I guess it's not really talked about too much anymore since Trump has been gone. But, you know, one of the things that Trump has, Trump ran on was, um, was um, you know, NATO, um, not NATO burden sharing. Um, mm-hmm. So it's still something in the political sphere. Uh, I guess that conversation doesn't really show up. But I don't, you know, other Republicans don't really even talk about that um, besides Trump. Um, but... You know the end product of of um, you know U.S. of the U.S. intervention is is created this kind of festering political and economic mess, and um, you know no one really wants to take responsibility of you know the overwhelming evidence that this nation building venture was a complete failure, um, and you know I've been trying to kind of somehow fit the current crisis in Ukraine in this entire episode because it's just so relevant right now that I don't want to get too off track and I guess we have a couple of minutes or we have a little bit to talk um have you been following do you, do you want do you mind if we move on or or yeah, talk that's about fine. this briefly yeah totally okay um so have you been following this uh, I know you've been real busy moving right now and um I've been busy too but um have you been paying attention to this, the Slack conversations in our Patreon group about this? 
we have i've been have seeing them but i haven't been reading any of the i haven't been reading any of the articles that that have been going on so <clears throat> so why don't you fill me in tell me what the fuck is going on and i'll give you my genuine reaction so i mean it, it's pretty cyclical so you know the media so basically um you know we had this conversation about in april about the fear that russia was going to invade ukraine and you know we looked at where the russian troops were stationed and they're hundreds they're hundreds of miles away um and the way that the media is reporting it is that if there's um you know russian tanks and russian migs flying across the border and they're just you know peering into the frontier or or the or the the borderland and they're ready to just march on down to kiev and kill everyone that they run into so the way that it's being reported is that these satellite pictures are are being kind of circulated about across every single news outlet is ran with the story um i mean like politico had a story on this beyond this New York Times already on this. Yahoo News had a story on this. Bloomberg had a story on this. Wall Street Journal had a story on this. And they're sharing this satellite imagery of, like, these Russian troop buildups. And then you, like, look at them and you're like, okay, where are, this, where are these Russian troops built up from based on these satellite images? And, you know, they're hundreds of miles away. If you just, like, type in, okay, they're in this city or this province, like, that's kind of far. So the way that it's being spent is that, that Russia is about to go and conquer Ukraine right now. And that's what's eventually led to this conference between Biden and Russia where, um, you know, I just watched the, um, the, uh, sec- the um, Jake Sullivan being interviewed about it by the press. And he was saying that he basically said that... Um, the U.S. will not be intervening in so many words. Like, okay. He basically said it because because um, Blinken said that the commitment to Ukraine. I think he used the word ironclad, and yeah, he used I the word that. ironclad mm-hmm. when, in the case of Taiwan as well. But yeah. what Just Sullivan words, said was that um, you know the Biden administration is basically not considering direct military intervention uh, in the event of a Ukraine invasion. And he's and the reason why I know he said that is because he kept on saying that we told them that there would be severe economic penalties if there was an invasion, but not. He didn't say anything militarily. And then the press is there, like, kind of baiting Sullivan. And, um, mm. you know, I thought Sol- Sullivan came off looking reasonable compared to, like, the animals in the press. And you know, the press were just Why like, not oh, kill him? Rah, 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 rah. And I was like, holy shit, mm-hmm. these people are just warmongering monsters. <laughs> these people who work on right. like the, the the corporate press. Um just like, how can we let this go on? Rah, rah. But and uh and you know, Biden I think that and you know, I dislike Biden a lot, by the way, so it's not this is not coming from the defender of the liberal left at all. Um but Biden, I don't think, wants anything to do with, like, a conflict. Like, he does not want to get bogged down in a conflict with Russia right now in Ukraine. He certainly does. It seems like that would just... It's a lose-lose situation for him politically right now um, to get bogged down in a um, 
in a crisis there because it seems like both major political parties, um, well, obviously most, that goes without saying that both major political parties want escalation to rack, to, to rack it up. So, um, you know, Republicans have now turned into like the new Russia gators. <laughs> Oh, Biden's a week on Russia. Uh, let's go, Brandon. Uh, um, it's just so stupid. It's just so dumb. Um, but what I think, you know, what the conspiratorial part of me says is that this is all just because um, what Ukraine's asking is Ukraine is asking for a permanent military presence from for from American soldiers. And I think that they, here's my conspiratorial side. They want to like have a, a um, they want to just take out the rest of the, the separatists in Russia. And not in Russia, in Donbass, in Eastern, in Eastern Ukraine. Um, because, you know, Ukraine and we're dealing with another ethnic conflict right now. Ukraine's basically two nations right now. There's a Ukrainian speaking part in the West and there's the Russian part in the East. And, you know, the parts of the Russian part are, are um, have uh, in a specific region called the Donbass region of, um, you know, they're aiming for a separatist or, you know, they're against the Ukrainian government that they see as uh, two Ukrainian nationalists for them. And they feel like they're going to be oppressed. And, you know, that's why um, the Crimean, uh, there was a vote in Crimea to, uh, to be part of Russia um, after um, the um, after there was the uh, uh, famous coup in 2014 because they thought that was too far. So um, I guess the point I'm trying to get is that the, I, maybe they want American troops there because they want to just like fire, like they want to go after the, uh, these separatists and they fear that there could be a Russian um response if they go mm-hmm. and if they uh go and try to you know make a final attack on the separatist and if there's american tripwire there that would prevent russia from um you know engaging with them militarily because out of fear of of uh, killing an american soldier uh that's kind of like what right but isn't the tripwire gone though well the tripwire would be for russia for Amer- like putting having american soldiers um, in you know, embedded with with Ukrainian troops would be tripwire because Russia wouldn't be able to. Uh, no, I hear act I hear that. Maybe, maybe I missed this soldier. part. Maybe I missed this part. Are you suggesting that that the plan is for us to do that to embed our our troops there? And if that's the case, how does that? That's what that's what Zelensky. That's what that's what the Ukrainian government is asking from the United States. I see. I see. But as as you pointed out, Sullivan said that we're not going to get involved. So the likelihood that we do that is he said very he low. said that in so many words he said that they're they're not that it's going to be purely economic. That um, it, I mean, he was saying like you know we're one hundred percent committed to the Ukrainian sovereignty and all this, and but I think. Um, I haven't watched like right wing news yet today, <laughs> which I I, I think I want to watch it after this. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm just curious to see what they say. I know Tucker Carlson will be fine on it, but Sean Han I'm gonna listen to Sean Hannity and see what he says. Just to have um, him lose his mind about it, because <laughs> I'm yeah. sure that when I turn I want to 
look at what Sean Hannity says and what like what they're saying on Fox News. And um, I've noticed that Newsmax, which is supposed to be the populist right news channel, mm-hmm. they have been really, really hard uh, attacking Biden from the liberal left on Ukraine. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Like all the political um, foreign policy positions have, have been shifting. And it's just like they're so unprincipled that it's almost laughable at this point. Like, so they're basically the, saying that we should be engaging militarily. So, so basically, like, mainstream Republicans right now sound like Democrats did two years ago. Like, that's what they sound like when they talk about Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, they sound silly and stupid. But it's partisan politics, and partisan politics makes everything stupider and dumber. Um, right. So whatever your opponent says, you have to say the opposite, just out of principle. Yeah, and both the Republican and Democratic right, parties are right. they're it's, both it's not they're on, both it's not central. No, I'm not but they're both just beholden to the military industrial complex and their donors and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can't really expect principled um, arguments or principled stances on really anything. Um, it's all just partisan politics and um, getting victories where you can. Um but yeah, that's the state of U.S. politics right now. But hey, at least there's not a secession, a deadly secession movement where people are getting killed, right? Yeah, at least. <laughs> not um, yet. No, man. I mean, I think I think this is the correct move. You know, um, much in the same way that I give Trump the you know uh, positive points for not blowing up Iran after you know the situations that happened there you got to give biden some points too for being like nope we're not gonna get involved you know i think that's probably a good idea i i i fear for the ukrainians but they're gonna have to figure it out well the thing the thing that just annoys me so much is that everyone's saying this like invasion is so um so imminent that russia is mm-hmm. going to invade ukraine any second now and i'm like mm-hmm. man have you looked at polling data in russia the Russian public doesn't want that. Um, right. The, 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 Russian, the Russian public doesn't have any say in it. It's what does the Russian government or more There needs to be some level of popular. So Putin has like a popular, I think he has an approval rate of like 60% right now. Yeah, but isn't so, he outgoing I mean, isn't, soon? They still, the government still wants to have a certain level of popularity. Like it would be extremely unpopular to get into like a ground war in, in Ukraine. All the major problems that they're facing, right? Like, Russia has a lot of problems economically right now. They can't afford to go into and get bogged down into some um, military conflict in Ukraine, especially when the entire world will be against them. Like, they really just can't afford to do that. I mean, Russia is a country with, like, I mean, how many time zones? Like, every time zone, or like 11 time time zones or something like that. Um, (laughs) All the time zones on that side of the world, they have it. (laughs) They, it, it would be, it would... Yeah, they'd be able to launch a bunch of missiles and or into um, and, and and obliterate Ukrainian forces, and it would be really bad for Ukraine. But I mean, they'd just be bogged down. It would it'd be terrible. And you know, the U.S. and and would fund any type of uh, resistance movement against them. So it would just be. I don't. They're not. Putin's not stupid enough to do that. Um, what Putin is doing in Donbass is that since. And this goes back to NATO when NATO became offensive instead of defensive. So NATO's expansion, you know, the war in Yugoslavia uh, or the war, the war, um, the post-war of the, uh, 
the wars of Yugoslavia, you know, the wars in the 90s, gave NATO a reason to exist, and it turned NATO into an offensive um, organization rather than a defensive organization. And NATO continued to expand its borders and expand its borders, and that is what is the, that's the main reason for this conflict is NATO expansion because now Russia Russia does meddle in Ukraine and, and Russia is not a good, good actor at all. They do want chaos in Ukraine, but, but the reason why is they don't want a solid nation state in Ukraine because a solid nation state would more likely be get membership to NATO. And so Ukraine can't get Zelensky, the the president of Ukraine. He keeps on lying and says, like, you know, all the paperwork is, is filled out in just a matter of days that we're going to get approved to be in NATO. But it's like he's making right. that up. It's not. They don't have – Ukraine doesn't, like, have any of the requirements to be part of NATO. One of them being is that you can't have, like, pre-existing border disputes and stuff like that and, and join. So they, they're not yeah. even really eligible. They wouldn't bring anything to the table because they don't really have a military – they had to rely on, um, you know, kind of fascist, super hard right groups um, to be kind of like their shock troops um, in, in, in like the early years of the current war. So, and, you know, I'm not saying at all that Ukraine is dominated or there's like a huge portion of like, you know, neo-Nazi types in Ukraine, but they certainly have a pretty strong influence there, especially with the security apparatus there. So um, it's... In Russia's interest to to have a kind of fragmented Ukraine, a bittering Ukraine, a fighting Ukraine, um, because then they it would be less likely for uh, NATO be able to NATO to be able to expand its borders there. Um, so that's why um, I think that's kind of the root of the conflict right now, um, mm-hmm. and it sucks. I mean, I think it's it's awful, man. U- Ukrainian politicians are pretty bad. Um, it's um, now Zelensky's approval ratings like 20 percent um, because he didn't keep any of the promises that he said he was. And, you know, this this also could be, you know, you see all the you see pictures of Sean Penn walking around with the troops there. Um, I guess he's making a documentary or something, but they just look so stupid. And it's like mm. all these articles will show like Ukrainian soldiers in like these trenches right now. It's like, get on the front lines. They're basically reporting that there's a war against Russia right now with Ukrainian troops. And I'm like. No, does that is that actually happening? It's like no, we're just reporting it. <laughs> like, there's actually like a firefight going on between Russian and Ukrainian soldiers. No, no, there isn't. But we're reporting it. <laughs> we're reporting something that isn't happening. But Sean Penn's here, and he has a helmet, and um, he is making a movie. Hopefully, he doesn't make a movie about like, you know, to you know some of the. F- far extreme elements there because uh, that would be bad uh, for his reputation uh, okay do you have anything else to say or because I'm rambling so much and I don't know if I'm making any more sense <laughs> no man I think I think this is a good ending point okay after two episodes after two times recording this episode um, one of which you'll hear um, I hope this is the better one out of the two but we're not both were very third, different. So both were actually <laughs> extremely, both were very different. So um, I guess hopefully this was the better of the two. 
But yep. thanks for joining us for another episode of Bro History. Once again, you know, we're sorry for the delay in episodes. Um, you know, kind of a freak thing that happened with the audio. Um, we are going to continue to try our hardest to get episodes out. We're still both doing a lot of traveling. Danny, of course, is in, a, is in you know, wherever the hell he is right now in Puerto Rico, um, doing a podcast and Airbnbs on a cardboard box. So, yeah. you know, come on, <laughs> A for effort for Danny. Um, and then, so we, once we get settled down, the episodes will be back to weekly episodes and it'll be a lot more consistent. So just bear with us whenever we have time to record, we're going to get, we're going to record something and plan an episode. So we're going to try our hardest to get them out in the meantime, rate and review the rate and review the podcast. If you want to support our show, you can also join us on Patreon, um, where you can join our Slack account where we have. Um, really awesome conversations, and uh, you know we have some awesome people in there who are really smart. Who um, we have some awesome people on Ukraine and Russia in there as well, who have a lot of great insight. So um, join our Patreon um, and support us, and uh, we will see you guys soon. Peace, peace.